Okay, so I'm going to skip through some of these first slides here. We talked about this stuff already in the last class. And we pretty much stopped here, didn't we? When um, I was talking about the various effects of uh, race, class, and gender on, uh, oops, on intelligence. And so uh, in the last class, we kind of really focused on the biological substrate, the inheritability of intelligence, um, some of the arguments and some of the ideas that intelligence was heritable. But I think um, we also showed that there's a significant effect of, excuse me, of the environment on intelligence. So um, things that are going to come up in the environment are related to socioeconomic status. So um, things that affect socioeconomic status strongly are race, class, and of course, gender. Um, now, uh, is that pretty much where we finished last time? What's that? It was exactly where. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> so um, today we're going. To, we're actually doing this a little bit reversed from your reading. Um, I noticed in the calendar that. Um, I was going to talk about this stuff first and then talk about the heritability afterwards, but I wound up reversing it. So today we're going to focus mostly on a couple of things. Um, some of the ways that intelligence has been conceptualized. So how do we see intelligence? How do we conceive of the development of intelligence? How do we conceive of appropriate methods for measuring intelligence? And we'll get into a little bit of test and measurement. Uh, construction. So the things that we do as psychologists and as test developers to make sure that our tests are um, valid and reliable. Right? So the first um, uh, topic that I'll talk about today is um, Spearman's uh, G. And the G factor um, was uh, a result of some statistical work by Charles Spearman. And Spearman suggested that intelligence comes in two factors. One is this G factor. And he's going to call that sort of um, a general level of intelligence. Um, at the time, remember, we're coming out of the Spearman and, I'm sorry, the uh, 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 Stanford-Binet tests. Um, Terman and, and, and Binet are developing the IQ tests. becomes later the Weschler um, test. And that gives you one number, IQ. And that's relative to sort of anybody at that age level. Spearman wants to develop a different kind of number, and it'll be still just one number, and it'll, he'll call it G for sort of general intelligence. The second factor that Spearman suggests uh, is that there are specific uh, specific factors. And um, these specific factors are going to be specific to a task. So for particular tasks, you have particular kinds of levels of intelligence. 
Um, and so he's not trying to fool himself that he can use one number to describe your intelligence overall, but he still wants to come up with this G, something that we can use to kind of compare individuals, right? This is still in that mindset of how we can compare individuals and, and rate their intelligence. He, um, he's the developer, incidentally, he's a statistician, and he's the developer of something called the rank order correlation. What's a correlation? A relationship. More importantly, what about the relationship? What's that? It's not a cause and effect relationship. Good. What else? So two variables, typically. You can have multivariate correlations, too. But generally, we think of correlations as two variables. What else is typical of correlations? So correlations either go positive or negative. And what can we say about a positive correlation? What does that tell us if a correlation is positive? Um, Almost. Well, if, if something's like happening like directly and it's like like your action affects something and it's like the correlation is positive, if it directly affects like or and it moves the other way, it's a negative. Correlation. Okay, you're getting into cause and effect there, so be careful with your language. But you're 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 just about there. Um, so we've got two variables. In a positive correlation, what happens when one variable goes up? What happens to the value of the other variable? It also goes up. Yeah. In a negative correlation, when one variable goes up, what happens to the value of the other variable? It goes down. Okay, good. So you're all, that's all coming out of the fog and haze of 201A. Um, so with uh, correlations, we can tell when there's a relationship between two variables. And what we like about that is we can tell if there's a systematic nature of that relationship between those two variables. And what can we do in terms of predicting the values of those variables, for example? So um, in the process of developing uh, his ideas on the G factor and the other factors, he goes through this um, rank order correlation. And what he finds is that there's a general tendency for there to be positive correlations between different kinds of abilities. So people with high abilities in one area tend to also have high abilities in other areas. And so that's what kind of leads them toward the idea that we can describe intelligence with this G factor. That's a number that it's going to be correlated, positively correlated, with these other factors. So it's a pretty good measure to be able to, to use as a one-number measurement. So... Um, Oh, so I've got a slide that talks about correlations. So yeah, so when there's no relationship in the data, when there's no systematic relationship between the value of one uh, item on one variable and the value of an item on another variable, um, you get this uh, scattered kind of um, distribution of points. You all understand how this works? So let's say um, this bottom axis, the x-axis here, is um, uh, age up to, say, 
15, let's say. And so you got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. And then up along the um, y-axis in this graph, you've got height. So you've got, you know, 30 inches, 40 inches, 50 inches, 60 inches, 70 inches, 80, I don't know. So um, when I graph an individual's height and weight, I go along the, the uh, x-axis to whatever their, um, I'm sorry, age is, and I uh, put a, a tick mark where their age level intersects with their height. And so each individual is represented by one uh, spot on the scatter plot. It's called a scatter plot. Yeah, so as the age goes up, you notice that the height goes up and there's a positive correlation. If uh, the, on this graph on the right-hand side here, if the bottom axis, the x-axis, is, uh, let's say, um, vehicle, um, no, let's say miles per gallon along the bottom here, and along this uh, y-axis, the vertical axis, is vehicle weight. So how heavy is your car plotted against what your mileage is? And if you plot the weight of your car and you drive a Hummer and the weight of your car is way up here um, and your gas mileage is way down here, then that's where your Hummer is. And um, each of these points would represent um, an automobile. And down here is uh, Geo Metro, yes, or um, what's that little uh, smart car, right? That's down here, right? The weight's low, but the mileage is uh, is very high. So um, that's a negative correlation, right? And so these systematic relationships tell us something about how two things are related and the kinds of properties we can expect from one variable knowing the value of the other variable. Now we never ever in behavioral science get a negative 1.0 or a positive 1.0 correlation. Um, behavioral science doesn't work that way. If we get a correlation of say 0.5 or 0.6, we're doing pretty good. That's a pretty darn good correlation. 0 0.7, 0 0.8, that's like Wow, you're really on to something. Um, most of the time we see like 0 0.2, 0 0.3 in correlations. Right. Um, no, they're linear. These are linear relationships. It could, you know, it could sort of look exponential based on what the value of these axis variables are. Okay, so one might, you know, one of these... Uh, axes, the numbers might go up faster, it might be smaller increments between numbers than on the other axis. So that may, well, may be why you think that way. But typically what we'll see is we'll see a pattern of dots which looks like a cloud and it'll be something like this. And so they'll be kind of scattered around in this cloud, but it'll give us a um, correlation coefficient of whatever. Okay. So, um, so correlations are useful for predicting information 
And so for Spearman, what he finds is that if he knows that someone has a relatively high number on G, they'll have a relatively high number on these other task-specific factors. Um, now, another scientist, Howard Gardner, is going to come along, and Gardner is going to say, um, you know, what I've actually been observing is that um, there are individuals who seem to have extraordinary abilities in one area, but they're not very, they don't seem to be very intelligent in general. And so that runs pretty strongly counter to um, Spearman. Although Spearman doesn't say that you always have high levels in task-specific factors when you have a high G. He just says that there is that, the nature of that relationship. Gardner starts describing this idea of savant individuals. And for an individual that's savant, this is someone who has these extraordinary abilities, but they seem to be in some way not very capable in, in a lot of other areas of their lives. So someone might be extraordinarily talented at musical ability, but they can't balance their checkbook, they um, don't have very good linguistic skills, um, but they know how to compose a symphony and they do it very well. And he'll call this, you've heard this term maybe idiot savant, right? Um, so someone who's not particularly bright in, in most areas, but has this very extraordinary ability. Yeah, David, do you have a question? Okay, so uh, the question is, what was it called in the movie Rain Man, where he had these these amazing abilities with mathematics, um, but his interpersonal skills were stunted, were were very um, deficient, and that is usually considered autism. He'd probably be he'd probably represent an individual who's autistic. Yeah. Oh, so a good example of the other uh, idiot savant um, uh, depiction in the movies is in the movie Shine. Yeah. Um, although, you know, it really kind of, he was doing okay for a while until he had that sort of um, emotional and mental breakdown. Um, and then he kind of, he kind of became withdrawn. And so... Uh, I, it's, I have a hard time knowing exactly what was going on in that movie, but that is a good example of how it might look, yeah. Other questions, ideas? Um, so Gardner comes up with the idea that instead of measuring G, um, instead of measuring one ability, we should describe people on a broader um, spectrum of abilities. And so he comes up with his notion of multiple intelligences. And he starts out with a pretty long list of different kinds of intelligences that he wants to measure. And through measuring them and using statistical processes, he narrows down his list. And he comes up with um, seven basic um, intelligences. Um, and these seven, he said, can really quite well describe uh, individuals' abilities. So the first one he'll describe as linguistic intelligence, and that's exactly what it sounds like, your ability to use words, to use vocabulary, to use grammar in effective ways for communication, right? Um, 
He describes logical and mathematical intelligence. Again, just what it describes. Basically, your ability to use operations, mathematical operations, your ability to understand logic, relationships between variables, for example. Um, spatial intelligence, which he'll say is essentially your ability to um, understand the relationship between objects in your environment, and also, for example, the ability to rotate objects in your mind and, and have a perspective of what they look at look like from different angles and different perspectives. Musical, just what it sounds like. Um, your ability to understand music and to um, engage in expressive behaviors with music. Bodily kinesthetic, essentially using your body in intelligent ways. Um, being able to move through space effectively with your body. Dance, someone who's extraordinarily good at dance, for example, has a high level of bodily kinesthetic uh, intelligence. And then um, he describes um, another factor called personal intelligence, and he breaks it down into interpersonal intelligence, interpersonal and intrapersonal. So interpersonal between persons, so the ability to, um, to effectively um, uh, understand and communicate between individuals, but also intrapersonal within the individual. So the ability to understand your own internal state, your own internal um, emotional structure. These interpersonal and intrapersonal are going to start getting toward the idea of emotional intelligence, which you've read about in your textbook, and I'll talk about in a second. So Gardner is going to say that um, in order to really represent someone's intelligence, you have to take into account all of these factors. What do you think about that? Does it seem reasonable? Oh, good. Okay, so it's very politically correct. Um, in order to say, um, you're an idiot, um, you just have extraordinary abilities in certain intelligences, yes. What else? What else do you think about this formulation? Good, good. So the question is, the comment is, how does this, um, how does, how do these intelligences play out in different cultures, right? Uh, is this list appropriate, for example, for North American culture, but is it appropriate in other cultures? For example, um, different cultures in different parts of the world have vastly different ideas of time and what time, the passage of time means and, and, and what it is. Um, they may have very different ideas of um, uh, mathematics and logical operations. So, yeah, good. What else? Um, one of the issues that kind of comes up is um, basically... How are you going to measure stuff like musical intelligence, bodily kinesthetic intelligence? Um, you know, when we're measuring intelligence, one of the things we like to do is make it easy. And so with the Weschler um, 
scales and with the Stanford Binet, you're basically giving someone a, a, a pencil and paper test and that's giving you an IQ. This stuff's going to be dip more difficult to measure. It's going to be uh, maybe more uh, difficult to administer and more difficult to understand the results. So there's some, you know, there are some issues with this formulation, but it's important because it'll start to lead to other ideas about um, intelligence testing, which um, which are important in their in their own right. Hold on, um, I'm sorry. What's your name? Liesel. Okay, yeah, first. Okay, good. So the question is, could these intelligence tests be biased because of subjective um, evaluation of what is musically intelligent, what is bodily kinesthetically intelligent? Okay. Okay. So how, what would you propose in order to get around the problem of subjective bias or subjective opinions in what interpersonal intelligence means or what musical intelligence means. Okay. Good, good. You're getting at that. Um, so the idea is, the idea that you're proposing is that we take a large number of subjects and see how these abilities represent themselves and see what the spectrum of the abilities are and base our um, judgments on that spectrum. That's a good way to do it. That's sort of collecting data on what's out there, understanding what the nuances are in the intelligence um, factors. Um, but then we're also going to have to find some way to objectively describe what each of these factors is. Do you remember what that's called in experimental design? When you went through uh, experimental design last quarter? When you describe a variable in detail in an experiment or a factor that you want to measure, you have to describe it very um, specifically in detail. It's called operationalizing a variable. So if I want to measure, for example, the length of the leaves on the tree out here, um, I'm going to have to operationalize what I mean by length. And that means, you know, is it in millimeters? Is it in inches? Is it in, you know, caterpillar legs? Uh, you know, whatever metric you're going to use. Um, you have to operationalize the kind of leaves that you're going to measure, right? Before you go out there and start collecting leaves, you're going to say, well, I'm going to measure only leaves from uh, Ficus borealis or whatever that tree is out there, right? So, um, uh, so very carefully describing the factors that you're going to measure is important. And that would help to avoid some of that subjective uh, influence and subjective bias. But I'm glad you brought that up because it can be a factor in something like this. Um, yeah, David, do you have a point? Okay. 
Okay, so um, so that's that's a good point. Whenever you're administering a test or a measurement, how do you distinguish between some basic kind of intelligence about music, for example, and the effect of advanced training, right? So that has to be factored out. Um, so maybe before they take the test, you ask them questions about their background and history and learning and that kind of thing. And you can use the results of those to kind of factor out of this intelligence score their experience and bring it down to a basic kind of, um, music, so for example, musical intelligence, right? Yeah, good. Um, so as I said, these last two factors, interpersonal and intrapersonal intelligence, um, get at something that is going to be developed later on in the 1970s, 1980s um, by uh, Peter Salovey and John Mayer. Uh, I think that should be an A there, M-A-Y-E-R. I'm not sure. That might be Meyer. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I'll have to look that up. Um, essentially, what they're going to say is um, people have the ability to be very intelligent. And we talked about intelligence and what the purpose of intelligence is. What's the perp really fundamental purpose of intelligence? What does it help us do? Deal with our environment effectively. And one aspect of your environment is interpersonal um, relationships. Another aspect of your environment is your own intrapersonal experience. So really what um, Salovey and Meyer are going to say is in order to effectively interact with your social environment especially, you have to have a knowledge not only of your own internal emotional state and what your emotions feel like, but also the emotional state of other individuals, the ability to sort of read other individuals' emotions, the ability to detect their emotional states and to, more importantly, respond appropriately to their emotional uh, experience. Um, and what he finds is that people who have skills in um, emotional intelligence also tend to be successful as we sort of, you know, there are various ways to define success, but in terms of um, social success, in terms of business success, these people tend to be more successful um, than individuals who have lower levels of emotional intelligence. Um, the drastic example that they use in their book, Emotional Intelligence, is the title of the book. Uh, not their book, I'm sorry, Daniel Goleman, who's an author and a researcher. Uh, what the drastic example he uses is, you know, a student who responds inappropriately to anger and rage and murders his um, instructor, for example, right? Um, doesn't do well on a graduate defense of a thesis or something like that and murders the person who has the power over him, right? Yeah, question? Right. So um, just yesterday there was a mass murder on a campus in Virginia. And, um, you know, that could could very well be an individual who has difficulty managing emotion and being able to manage um, their own internal emotions, but also have difficulty with managing the emo their emotional experience with other individuals, too. And um, 
so yeah, uh, someone who has these qualities is generally going to, according to emotional intelligence theory, generally going to um, be less successful in adapting to their social environments. Yeah, question? Partly. So the question is, is it like having tact? I think partly tact will come into play here. To pick the best response right. to a particular situation, sure. That makes sense because even if you were some type of genius or, you know, you knew numbers really well, like if you can't communicate that to people or if you can't do it in an appropriate way, you're not going to really get anywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, so if you're a genius and you don't have the ability to relate effectively, you're going to have difficulty communicating that genius to other people or having other people trust, um, trust that genius. Yeah, David, did you have a question? Okay, so oftentimes there are certain motivations which um, may keep people from dis from exhibiting emotionally intelligent behavior. Um, sure, and we're, we'll actually be talking about that when we talk about emo uh, motivation and emotion uh, next class. Yeah. Um, now, what about common sense? Do you think common sense has, how do you think that relates to emotional intelligence? Yeah, common sense is not very common, indeed. Yeah, it's uncommon sense. Um, so, but it, I think it fundamentally is sort of similar. Your ability to sort of understand and comprehend the situation that you're in and to respond to it appropriately. And if you respond to it appropriately, you're going to have better results. If you respond to it inappropriately, you're going to have less, um, uh, less, uh, less favorable results. Thank you. I was just about to say less better results, and I knew that that wasn't the right word I wanted. Yeah, yeah. Some of the some days the words just come out, and some days got to drag them out. Um, okay. Any uh, questions, ideas on this? If you want to look up their book, um, I would imagine we have a copy here in the library. It's worth, uh, it's worth reading if you're at all interested in um, success and uh, uh, what helps people to be um, successful. Sure. You know, okay. Has a lot of the paranoia thing going on, 
long stories that are amazing, really intriguing to watch. Um, but I mean, it can totally, if she's alienated everybody in life. So the story is about um, an individual who um, is possibly delusional, possibly um, in some state of dementia, um, and has having trouble relating to individuals around them. Um, so just so other people might be clear, um, uh, one aspect of mental illness that can emerge is um, delusions. And delusions are sort of... Um, beliefs that an individual holds which are not objectively verifiable by other individuals around them. Um, so, for example, I might have a delusion that um, uh, that uh, I'm being stalked by um, a celebrity. And every time I turn around, I see the celebrity's name and that's an indication that they're getting closer and closer to me. And it doesn't matter how much I talk to you, you somebody, how much you talk to me and say, you know what, um, seeing a celebrity's name in the newspaper doesn't mean that they're getting closer to you. Doesn't mean that they're, you know, they're stalking you. But um, my delusion is that that's, that's the indication. That's the indication that they're on their way to get me and I have to hide from them, right? So, um, so this is, um, this is a behavior that's uncontrollable, that's unwanted, and um, it's extraordinarily disturbing. So, as you say, someone who's in a state of delusion or a state of dementia, which is um, a more general cognitive confusion, isn't going to have that connection with their own internal state that's going to um, represent some sort of reality it's going to be a, a con relatively confused internal state. Plus, their interpretation of events that are going on around them are all filtered through that delusion, and so they're distorted in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, emotional intelligence is going to be a big problem for individuals with uh, delusions or uh, dementia. Absolutely. So older individuals who are who are having who are in dementia will sometimes say um, really bizarre things or very inappropriate things, right? Totally inappropriate in the situation. Um, yeah, exactly. They're they're not connected to that emotional experience, that kind of flow of emotional experience between individuals, right? Yeah, David. Okay. Right. Right. So individuals with Alzheimer's will behave in extraordinarily bizarre kinds of ways. Yeah. Um, unexplainable. Yeah. Good. Um, yeah, unfortunately, and it's um, a disease that uh, we don't have a cure for yet. So it's a lot of research, though, in Alzheimer's. If you want to get a grant for federal research funding, do research on. Alzheimer's, HIV or AIDS, and uh, cancer. Yeah, those are th three areas that a lot of funding is going into right now. One more. I was going to say that it also works another way. I know I have friends in 
Oh. <laughs> so, so an elderly friend who is pretty on top of things and pretty lucid, and and he knows that people may give him some leeway in doing or saying bizarre things, and so he has a good time with it. All right. <laughs> Watch what happens. So he's a social psychologist, in other words. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, why don't we uh, take a break here? Um, okay. We're back from a break in the middle of class. Um, question, yeah. One more time. What was that? High intelligence, high emotional intelligence, or high Oh, so what is the relationship between, for example, IQ and emotional intelligence? Is that what you're asking? Um, so, so you know, what's the relationship between emotional intelligence and other sort of intelligence uh, scores? Um, well, for one thing, from Gardner's research, we know that um, interpersonal and intrapersonal intelligence are correlated with the other intelligences. I don't know specifically about data that has looked at correlations between other intelligence measurements and emotional intelligence. Um, the, the correlations that I know about are... Um, you know, a relationship between higher emotional intelligence and, um, for example, academic success. So s- success in high school or, um, or university, yeah. But of course, that's just a correlational relationship. doesn't mean that higher emotional intelligence is going to cause you to be more successful. It may be that other factors like socioeconomic status or... Um, uh, class, race, gender, those kinds of factors that may be related to um, higher achievement um, may also be related to uh, emotional intelligence. So, you know, these are difficult things to tease apart and find any kind of causal relationship. But there certainly is still a lot of relationship, a lot of relationship, a lot of research going on on emotional intelligence. While we were on break, I went to look up in uh, PsychInfo, which is the main database of um, academic papers in psychology. And I did a search on the uh, term emotional intelligence, and there were um, almost a 1,000 papers on emotional intelligence. And that's looking at emotional intelligence in relationship to all different kinds of factors and variables. So uh, it's, um, it's an a- active area of study. And one of the things that is nice about emotional intelligence, according to Daniel Goleman, for example, who wrote the book Emotional Intelligence, is that it can be taught. Um, you can teach school children, um, and it's best at a younger age to teach them um, about emotional intelligence, about their own emotional territory, and about other people's emotional expressions. Um, as we'll learn when we go through emotion in class here, you'll see that Primarily, we express emotions through body language, and 
most likely in body language will express emotions through facial uh, expressions. So it's teaching children how to appropriately read facial expressions of others and also how to appropriately use their own facial expressions to communicate emotion, um, but also to use verbal, um, uh, verbal means for communicating what their emotional state is and asking other people about their emotional state. So um, it's, it's an interesting area of study. It is, incidentally, John Mayer with an, with an M-A-Y-E-R, not M-E-Y-E-R. I thought I had that, might have had that wrong. Um, it, cor yeah, the correlation holds uh, in high school, holds in university, and holds in later in life between higher emotional intelligence and success. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of teaching emotional intelligence to older individuals, I think that uh, at least the research that I've seen seems to suggest that it might not be as effective as it is um, if you try to teach at a younger age. Okay, so we looked at um, early efforts to come up with an intelligence quotient and then the G factor that uh, 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 Spearman came up with. Um, and then the branching out into the seven um, intelligences of Howard Gardner's formulations. Um, and we talked about emotional intelligence, which is um, sort of one aspect of that, um, two aspects of that seven factor model. Um, it's really difficult to measure intelligence on like seven different factors. You're going to have to have larger pools of questions if you're going to do it with pencil and paper. Um, and, it, and these kinds of intelligences may not get at what's really important in life. Now, as we said earlier, I said, what defines intelligence? What's the, what's the characteristic of intelligence? What's it good for? And it's good to help us adapt to our environments as our environments change. Um, and part of that adaptation to our environment is that we face unexpected situations, right? Um, you know, you, um, you go out, you know, you go driving out and there's a traffic jam um, in a particular area. So you hear it on the radio. And um, you're going to want to avoid that traffic jam. How are you going to do that? What are you going to do? So you're going to visualize a different route. What else? Use your, yeah, <laughs> use your spatial intelligence to kind of visualize the um, yeah, the uh, the route and and how it how it looks. Yeah, and how you might alter it. Yeah. What else? What else are you going to do? So sometimes you have to think quickly. You, yeah, so you might have to make a quick decision. And these are all behaviors that we engage in fundamentally to solve a problem. And the problem is, how do I avoid getting stuck in this traffic jam? Um, you know, you might be making something for dinner 
and on your way home you decide I'm going to make a certain thing for dinner and you go to the grocery store to get the ingredients and you find out they don't have one of the ingredients you need. What are you going to do? You're going to improvise. Again, you're going to problem solve. You're going to start thinking of alternative solutions, see what you can come up with to solve this problem. And so one of the individuals who studies intelligence is Robert Sternberg. Uh, Sternberg is also um, at the forefront of what's called the positive psychology movement right now, which is studying um, how people positively respond to situations, whereas psychology in the past has mostly looked at how people respond negatively. Um, Sternberg is actually looking at, um, again, college students, and he's not particularly that interested in success. Sternberg is going to say, um, what's important about intelligence is that it allows us to solve problems. And he's going to come up with this uh, triarchic uh, theory of intelligence. Your book actually gives it a different name, which I forget what it actually calls it. Um, but basically it has three factors for intelligence. One is analytical intelligence. The second is creative and the third is practical. And each of these factors has to do with um, what you do to solve problems. When you encounter problems in your environment, when you encounter situations that are unexpected and you have to find a solution, how do you do that and are you able to do it effectively? And so what he'll say is that what's important about analysis is that we effectively analyze the problem and that we effectively um, uh, come up with a solution from an analytic standpoint. What does it mean to do analysis? Okay. So look at your data, how understand how it relates to you and your situation. Um, analysis is juxtaposed with synthesis, the antonym of, well, not really the antonym, but um, the opposite of analysis is synthesis. What's synthesis? What does it mean to synthesize something? To create it. Right. To take, you synthesize, when you make dinner, you're synthesizing a meal from a bunch of ingredients. Yeah. So in analysis, you're breaking down a problem maybe into smaller problems. Each of those problems may be easier to solve, right? Um, in synthesis, you're taking a bunch of separate pieces and putting them together and coming up with something new that's maybe greater than the sum of the parts, right? So with um, analytic intelligence, analytical intelligence, this requires that you can effectively look at a problem and break it down into um, solvable pieces, right? Creative intellig intelligence, he's going to say, is your ability to look at problems from maybe different, unusual, or new perspectives. So to approach a problem and approach solving a problem from a novel or a unique perspective or a unique approach. And he's going to say that's an important part of problem solving too. Um, practical intelligence, he's going to say, has to do with your everyday, your ability to functionally solve everyday kinds of problems. How am I going to make dinner? How am I going to pay my bills this month? Um, 
how am I going to effectively um, resolve this argument with my colleague, right? And this um, uh, practical intelligence, he says, you know, you might consider part of it to be like emotional intelligence, but it goes a little bit beyond that. It goes into people's ability to um, effectively manage their everyday kind of existence um, and to respond effectively to their environment, right? Um, and I like this formulation for a couple of reasons. One, because it gets at problem solving, which is um, really one of the fundamental aspects of what it is to be intelligent, to respond appropriately to your environment, requires that you solve problems, requires that you encounter problems, that you understand them, analyze them properly, um, find new and maybe creative solutions to those problems, and to be able to deal um, effectively with your everyday environment. Um, yeah, question? So uh, the question is, wouldn't your motives and values come into play here? Absolutely. Like if you were okay with being deceitful, you could come up with some suggestions. Um, I would imagine if you were okay with being deceitful, you could use um, you could use your creative intelligence to come up with creative, manipulative solutions to your problems. Sure. Morals and values might come in, for example, in your practical intelligence. How you manage your everyday life may be guided by uh, morals and values. Yeah, I can see that. Good question. So um, the question is, uh, how would you be able to tell if you were more creatively intelligent or if it was just your natural personality? Um, one of the, th I don't, first of all, I don't know the data of the relationship between Sternberg's factors and personality factors. Um, intelligence, we generally tend to think of as something that is not um, fixed over time, that it can change over time. So your intelligence scores can change over time. Personality factors trait, at least in the trait model of personality, and you studied this in, uh, 201A, I think. In the trait uh, model of personality, we tend to think of these things as more stable and less changeable. And so um, we can measure those two things separately, really. We can measure, for example, um, uh, in the big five factor model, um, openness to experience. That is your openness to um, new experiences and um, having um, uh, unusual, you know, being able to tolerate unusual events. And we might be able to separate that from, for example, creative intelligence that is coming up with creative ways to solve problems. Um, creativity, how would we measure creativity versus creative intelligence? I don't know. That would have, you know, those kinds of things would proceed from measuring creative intelligence, measuring creativity, and seeing if there's a correlation. If they're two separate factors, if they're two separate things, there's going to be a difference between the two. They're not going to correlate that well. You're going to find um, that, they're, that their factor, what's called a factor model, is going to show that they're different factors. Um, and I, again, I just don't know the data on the relationship between personality and, um, and this triarchic uh, theory of intelligence. The second reason that I 
think that this is a useful model is not only that it solves problems, but uh, that it's about problem solving, but because it's relatively simple. It's a lot less complex than a seven-factor model, um, but it encompasses a lot more interesting behaviors than an IQ test, for example, or a G general intelligence factor, right? Yeah, question? So the idea then, sort of the, the point is that um, if you've got an intelligence test that measures some sort of knowledge, first of all, it's going to be culturally based. So, you know, I'm expected to know a particular piece of trivia because I come from this particular culture, but in another culture, it's going to be an entirely different set of questions, right? Um, so knowledge, though, is an interesting thing to measure, and it's probably part of intelligence. But this can um, this can have this can be used much more broadly cross culturally um, because in all cultures we're going to be facing um, the the issue of how do we go about solving uh, problems and challenges. Yeah, good. Other uh, questions, ideas on the theories of intelligence. So um, the only the only one that I don't cover in my lectures is um, uh, they talk about Vygotsky and his idea that intelligence is a product or co-developed through social um, interactions. But um, I never was taught much about that, so I don't know that much about it. I can't talk too much about it. So. Um, the, what's that? Yes. So, Vi yeah, Vygotsky was in the development chapter. And in context of development, Vygotsky challenges the stage model of development and says the development occurs on a much more continuous kind of basis and less in these abrupt changes and abrupt stages. Um, but in terms of intelligence, he's, he had some ideas about um, the social context being important in terms of development of intelligence. Um, but I, again, I don't know that much about it, so I don't talk too much about it in lecture. So here's a question for you. If I give you a test and I tell you it's an intelligence test, 
how can I know that it's really measuring your intelligence? First of all, I am going to give you a test in, what, a week and a half? Yeah, in a week and a half, I am going to give you a test. And my intent on that test is to test your knowledge of chapter 11 content and chapter 12 content. So um, intelligence, emotion, and motivation. Um, what I would really like to do is to be able to go up to each one of you and um, open up the top of your skull and open it up and look inside and say, is the information in there? Oh, yeah, okay. A. Is the information in there? Well, it's kind of there, not really. Okay, you know, B. So, um, D. Um, what? There's nothing in there. F. So, um, so I can't do that, though. I don't have direct access to your knowledge. So I've got to go through some crude, indirect means to try to get at whether you know the stuff that you're expected to know to fulfill the course outcomes of the course, right? Psychologists are the worst teachers in terms of tests. Um, we know too much about test and measurement, and we know too much about how tests often don't measure what it is we think that they're measuring. So, for example, um, if I give you your exam, um, and or let's say the quizzes. You know, I gave you a quiz today. I gave you 10 multiple choice questions, and I gave you 10 minutes to answer those multiple choice questions. And based on that, I'm going to um, assess, because tests and measurements are about assessment, I'm going to assess how much you know about intelligence. What kinds of other factors, what kinds of other effects, what kinds of other influences do you think that I might be assessing in addition to your uh, knowledge of intelligence? Just okay, so ability with um, tests. What specifically about tests? Okay, so um, your, uh, whoops. I was looking for the trash can. Um, your response to time limit, right? If I put a lot of time, if I say you have three minutes to answer these 10 multiple choice questions, what other kinds of things am I going to be measuring if you're successful or unsuccessful? Stress, right. What else am I measuring when I give you a multiple choice test? Yeah. Okay, so to uh, analyze the uh, responses. And as a part of that analysis of the responses, to eliminate incorrect responses. Not to identify the correct one, but to just eliminate enough of the incorrect ones that you have a, at least a 50-50 chance maybe of getting it right, even if you don't know the actual answer. 
Um, so that's why I like to call my multiple choice tests multiple elimination tests. Right. What else am I measuring? Memory. Memory, good. So not necessarily knowledge, but your ability to get to that knowledge. Right? Okay, so reading and comprehension more importantly. Anybody notice? No. So she capitalized the correct answers to the questions and later asked if anybody noticed and nobody noticed. Yeah. Good. So um, again, your sort of knowledge or your, your kind of ability to deal with this test and understand it. So there's all kinds of things that I'm measuring with my quizzes and with my multiple choice exams. Um, what we have to make sure of if we really want to measure knowledge is that we control for each of these factors. That is that we try to make each of those factors the same for each of you. So if you're higher, for example, if you're higher on memory and you're lower on memory, um, I'm going to adjust my final score a little bit to compensate for lower memory, right? But memory is so connected to knowledge, it's hard to pick it apart, right? Um, if a per certain person deals poorly with time limits and just stresses out and can't deal with it, maybe I've got to control for that factor somehow. So we can do things to help um, get closer to measuring your knowledge. But um, it's a really difficult, time-consuming, and odious process. So we're essentially stuck with what we do in testing in academia, which is we give you a paper and pencil test. And um, I overcome some of these things, for example, by um, telling you if you have a hard, if you don't understand a word or if you're not clear what the question is, let me know. Um, uh, I don't give you a time limit because I don't want to measure your response to time pressure, right? Um, I want to measure your knowledge. So there are all kinds of ways that we can alter how we administer these things. But fundamentally, psychologists have a hard time being confident that we're actually measuring knowledge and not some other factor that may be um, correlated or well correlated or poorly correlated with knowledge. So getting back to the question, how can we know if a test really measures intelligence? Well, from the reading? Well, intelligence is subjective. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. What else? Good. So we're going to need to establish validity that we're actually measuring intelligence and not something else. And we're going to need to establish reliability. So um, let me talk about each of those factors. So validity, essentially validity refers to the idea that what I think I'm measuring is what 
actually is being measured by the instrument. Okay. So, um, if I have a scale, I, I roast coffee. That's one of my uh, hobbies. Roast coffee and... Um, you know, I get different beans from different parts of the world, and I mix them together in different proportions, and I roast them to different degrees of roast, and um, I try to find the best possible blend for espresso. And um, So that's kind of like my little thing, you know. We all got... Well, mine's a little weirder than most people. Coffee. All right, so I roast coffee. And the thing about coffee is that coffee... Different coffees from different places have different densities. So the bean is heavier or lighter based on how much water there is in the coffee, for example. If it's there's more water in the bean, then it's going to be a little bit heavier than a bean that is uh, more dried. So, um, so they have different densities. So I can't roast by volume um, because if I do that, then it creates problems with the roaster. The roaster needs to roast by uh, weight. So I need a scale that's going to give me the weight of these beans. And so I measure out 110 grams of beans, and that's how much my roaster can accommodate. So if I had a scale and, um, and I poured my beans on it, I want to make sure that that's actually measuring the weight of the beans and not something else, like, um, you know, the weight of... Um, uh, the weight of the exhaust from an aircraft that just passed overhead or cosmic rays that affect the scale, right? Um, or the moisture in the air. You know, all those things are going to slightly affect the scale, but I, w I want relatively to make sure that the, the scale is measuring the weight of the beans and not some other unrelated factor, right? Like my emotion at the time or what I had for breakfast is going to affect the scale measurement, right? So um, I've got to establish somehow that what I'm measuring is real, what I think I'm measuring is really what's being measured by the scale. And we can do that a few ways. Um, your book talks about content validity, essentially looking at the stuff Looking at the at the items on a scale, for example, on a test, if I give you your exam, I need to look at the questions on the exam, and I do that. When I construct your exam, I pull questions out of a test bank, and I look at the t test bank questions, and I want to make sure they're asking questions about things that I really expect you to know as part of this course. Sometimes they're asking really bizarre, detailed questions that I really don't consider a core element of knowledge in this course. So I go through a little bit of content validity. This is also called face validity um, sometimes. Essentially, that means, does this look like it measures what I think I'm measuring? So if I give you an attitude questionnaire, say your attitude about um, homosexuality, and I have questions on there about the... Um, uh, I have questions. Uh, this is hard. I have questions on there about um, the gas mileage of a uh, Toyota Corolla. That's probably not really very valid. You know, you just kind of look at it. and go, well, how is that related? Well, you know, maybe 
someone who is homosexual knows more about cars or no there's no way that's valid right so face validity kind of that's the first form of validity we establish um, then um, the other forms of validity are more effective in actually establishing validity one of them is predictive validity can I predict if I know something about a certain person and I give them this test, will I get the results that I expect, right? So I predict that I'll get this certain result and I give them the test and I get the result. That's a pretty good form of validity. But an even better form of validity is concurrent validity. If I have something that I already am confident measures a particular factor, and I measure you using that scale, and then I give you another scale and measure you, do they line up? Do they correlate? And if I find a high correlation uh, with concurrent validity, then I can say, this scale probably measures what I think it's measuring because I know that this other one measures, the other scale that I was comparing it to measures that. If I don't get a high correlation, either the new scale is wrong, or maybe the old scale never was established, um, never established validity correctly, right? Okay, so that's validity. So if I know something is measuring what I think it's measuring, what if, um, how am I going to know that it's reliable? When I measure my beans for coffee roasting, and I measure out 110 grams, and I pour the beans out into another bowl, and I put the I put them back on the scale, does it still say 110 grams or does it say 150 grams or 80 grams? Well, maybe the, you know, the friction of pouring it out into the other bowl lost some of the weight of the beans, but certainly not, you know, 30 grams, right? So um, that's reliability, that the, the scale is going to measure the same weight the same time every time you use it. And the same thing with psychological measures and with intel intelligence tests, and that's test-retest reliability. I measure the beans, and I measure them again. Do I get the same result? Yeah. I give you an intelligence test, and I give you the same test again. Do I get the same result? Yes. What's the problem with that? Yeah. So your exposure to a test once is going to affect your responses the second time you take it, especially if the items are exactly the same. Um, so, you know, I may give you a test today, and in two weeks I give you the same test. Maybe you went out and studied and learned something new. Or if I give you, even if I give you the same a test now, and I have you do a filler task for 10 minutes, say I have you do a crossword puzzle on something unrelated to the test, and I have you do another test 10 minutes later, it's the same test, your scores are generally going to be better on that second administration. And even if the items change slightly, and that's practice effects. And we want to eliminate as much as we can practice effects. So we'll oftentimes give people um, a version of the, uh, a similar test to the one that we're actually administering ahead of time so that we can eliminate some of those practice effects. That's why with you, um, I'll be distributing to you a practice exam before you take your first exam with me. Those of you who have already had an exam with me um, probably don't need to use it because it'll be, it, 
it's mostly what it does is it familiarizes you with the format of the questions I ask, um, the way the exam is structured and formatted, so that when you get the exam the day of the administration, I'm not measuring your response to this brand new exam you've never seen before, right? Um, and I'm going to eliminate uh, the possibility of um, practice effects having an, having an effect. Split half reliability. Take half the questions. Compare them. Each half of the question, do they, if I select questions randomly, I should be able to compare those two halves and get a relatively equal score. If I don't, that probably means that there's something wrong in one of those halves, one of the halves of those uh, questions. So I'd have to go through another procedure to try to establish which of the questions are causing problems, are unreliable. They're not measuring the same information, right? And discriminative reliability is another form of reliability that I use on your exams. After you take your exams and I run the Scantrons through, one of the things that I'll do um, is I'll run what's called an item analysis. And the item analysis tells me how many people took the, how many forms I scanned or how many people took the test, test and how many people got each question incorrect. And if I see that, you know, 100% of you got a question incorrect, that's going to probably tell me there's something uh, wrong with that question. And most likely what that indicates is there's an incorrect answer in the answer key. Um, if, say, 70% of you get a question wrong, it might be that it was just a, you know, a difficult question that 30% of you got correct and the other 70% didn't. So what I have to do at that point is I go and I look at the top scorers, say the top 15% of people who are on the exam, did they, were they reliably able to get the question correct? If they could reliably get the question correct, I say that question probably discriminates between knowledge, if you got it correct, and not knowledge, if you got it incorrect. If the top 15% couldn't reliably get it correct, maybe they even got it incorrect two-thirds of the time or half the time even, um, I'll probably say, well, there's something about that question that makes it difficult to answer correctly. And it could be the way it's worded. It could be that the correct answer is confusing. It could be the distractor items, which are the incorrect answers on a multiple choice, are too close to the correct answer, so it, you can't discriminate between the correct one from the incorrect one. And these are ways to make sure that tests are reliable and that if I give this same test to multiple people, if I give this same test to you over and over, I'll get essentially the same results. And with validity and reliability, that gives us much more confidence that we're actually measuring what we think we're measuring and that we can do it over and over again and get the same results. Yeah, question? With the reading quizzes? Yeah, I do. Um, I'm a little less um, um, careful with those, um, and general and rarely do I really find one that has trouble because I handpick um, some of the more what I think are the easier questions. Yeah, yeah. And not really the reading quizzes. I really only want to get a sense of whether you guys are doing the reading, whether you're getting the reading. If you're not 
getting some really basic concept, then there's probably something going on. So I do an item analysis, but I'm not that careful in looking at discriminatory reliability. Yeah. Good question. Um, well, we did actually hit full class time today. Um, so I will see you on Thursday, huh? And we'll talk about motivation.